I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with my colleague, Dr. Abby Strauss. The focus today, physicians in recovery. And our guest is Dr. Richard Morgan. He brings to us some very personal insights. His story starts with a prescription for pain medicine while in medical school following dental surgery. It's evolved into a habitual use of opioids, multiple runs at drug treatment and rehab, writing illicit prescriptions, a DEA arrest, a revoked medical license, eight years in jail. Today, Dr. Morgan is a full-time clinical instructor back at his medical school, New York Institute of Technology, College of Osteopathic Medicine. How did this treacherous journey all begin? It really started very benignly. It started very uninsidiously while I was starting my rotations in third year medical school. Doing my OB rotation, I developed some really horrible tooth pain. My dentist told me that my wisdom teeth were coming in and they were impacted and I need to get them removed. So I went through the procedure. I had four teeth, they were all removed, but the fourth tooth led to a significant infection. I developed a periodontal abscess that led to me developing lockjaw, 105 fever, really, really horrible, horrible infection. One of the things that I had to do was go to an oral surgeon to get the abscess drained, which was incredibly painful. And ironically enough, I'd never taken a pill since I was like two years old. I don't take pills. And they prescribed me Vicodin, hydrocodone for the pain. And I really didn't want to take it. But I was in so much excruciating pain, I had never really undergone anything like that. So I started to train myself to be able to take a pill. That's really where everything started. It didn't really take long. It was a slow, insidious, evolving process. Over 10 years from the very first pill led to me, 10 years later, getting arrested on a conspiracy drug charge. But it all began with that simple, when I look back and I've gone through all the treatments and all my therapies, everything, it really just started with that simple pill. And you said that you originally prescribed the Vicodin for the pain from the abscess. But shortly thereafter, you enjoyed the euphoria. Yeah, it was really interesting. The very first couple times, it really just kind of like numbed the pain. And it was like, wow, that was great. But living at home, even though I was in med school, I wasn't on my own. I wasn't as independent I was ready to be yet. And I just followed the prescription as needed. I think that there was this area where effects of the medication started to morph into something that wasn't just treating the pain, but it became more of a sensation of like, wow, that really felt good. I no longer had the pain. What happened was it wasn't just the pain going away. It was taking it to the next level, if you will. And I, I started to get just a feeling of empowerment that I really enjoyed. Those endorphins kicked in that we all read about, the serotonin, and it just made me feel much more empowering. It's hard to remember the specifics, but I remember the feeling. And those are the things that I took with me from that moment on. When did you begin to realize or sense that this was now reaching in a different domain? There wasn't a specific day. There wasn't a specific moment. But what I think happened was I'm trained as a good patient. I take the prescription as needed. I was probably taking it probably more than just the PRN. I also took it probably on days where probably the pain didn't hit an eight or a nine. It might have been a four, let's say. Those are the days where I felt that kind of powerful surge, that morph, if you will, into something more than just an analgesic effect. There wasn't a lightning bolt into my brain or into my system, into my soul that said, wow, I'm going to like literally going to run and hit and run for the hills and, and start popping all these pills. The feeling stuck with me. 
I'll give you an example. Prescription bottle filled up. I felt okay. And I'm like, you know, that felt pretty good. It might not be such a bad idea to have that refill that they put in there because back then Vicodin was schedule three. So I can just get the refill, no problem. And my mom being the mom she was, you know, went and got the refill. And I had that extra pill that I could take if the pain was there. I specifically remember at times, wow, that felt really good. Maybe I'll just take a couple extra just to make sure I feel better. In my mind, it's just making me feel better overall. Did you get the feeling that, uh-oh, I'm getting into trouble here? Not at all. In fact, this was like, hey, this is prescribed to me. I have an actual medical condition. I'm doing what was told of me. I never, ever considered that this is something bad. When did I feel that there was some sort of line? It's hard to really pinpoint because it really evolved over several years. I would take the pills. I remember how they made me feel. I remember running out. It wasn't like, oh my God, let me go write a prescription. I worked at Bellevue and NYU. I was doing my residency there. And I remember there being patients. I'd have to go pick up prescriptions in the clinic. If I went and got their prescription pills on their way out, I might have taken a pill or two. For instance, I would go to a family's house and I might check, you know, let me see if they have a pill in their medicine cabinet. I'll take one or two. And that's kind of how it developed. In my mind, very innocently, just taking this and I still have the after effects, let's say, of the surgical procedure. In my mind, I'm justifying, rationalizing, minimizing my drug use. Not even for the first few years ever said to myself, I was going down a negative path. I was going down a dangerous path. Did not think that right away. Did you rationalize to yourself several years later, gee, I think I still have some discomfort from the procedure? At that point, it was no longer an issue with the surgical procedure I had. It became more about, I remember that feeling that I had. It was a feeling that I had that made me feel confident, that made me feel powerful. It made me feel assertive. It made me feel like I could handle any situation. And ironically enough, I never actually felt negative before. I was always good in situations, but it put me above and beyond in a room and never have to worry. It opened up all my senses. Everything became clearer to me. And I would use it as as an excuse. Well, if we were going out with friends or family or was in a social situation, I would say, let me take a couple pills because I remember that feeling of confidence. And and that's how it morphed. Then I started making up excuses. I get into a fight with my wife. I get into a certain difficult day, stress at work. And then I'd be like, you know what? I liked how those pills made me feel. I'm going to take two or three of those. And then it became difficult to find. So I decided at some point, saying, you know what? Let me go down to the hospital clinic and write a prescription for the patient, saying I'm stopping by to pick up the prescription. And I would do that. We take the prescription as my own. That's way I would have myself more supply just to take as I needed. And that's kind of how it started. So again, about perceiving whether you were doing anything that maybe was a little wrong. We've always been taught in our training, maybe not enough, but we've been taught to watch out for patients who are having these type of habits, to be careful about what you prescribe so you don't create this situation for a patient. How did you justify that it was okay for you to do it, but it wasn't something for the other people to be doing? You know what? Maybe this is kind of like an excuse, but this is one of the platforms I've been standing on now. I feel the education in med school was really lacking, both in psychiatric and addiction medicine. And I never really felt that I got the necessary education to understand addiction and to ever really think that that was something that could happen to me. It really wasn't until I was a resident that I started realizing I was going down a path. By then it was too late because for me, it was more about preventing the withdrawal symptoms. I never really felt guilty. 
I, I would say sometime after 9-11 is when the thing started to take off. Well, I actually watched the towers fall from Bellevue. It was a really very difficult day for me. Having to deal with a lot of the victims from 9-11, I feel that my use really expanded not long after that. And I would justify it just by saying what I've been through, I feel like it's justified. And I'm going to continue to write these prescriptions. I'm going to take them. And it wasn't even at that point I felt like I was doing anything illegal or wrong because I felt like I was doing it for me. I wasn't causing any pain or ill will on anyone else. What I was doing was to help better myself, if that makes any sense. And that's the scary thing about what addiction does. It convinces you of the things that you do are okay. The 9-11 reference is interesting because we have spoken with other physicians who have gone through recovery process, and we've heard the same, shall we say, rationalization, that they were in New York, they were part of what happened at the Twin Towers, and it pushed them into that arena. I don't sit here and I don't blame 9-11 for what happened to me because my addiction was really starting, the roots of it had already begun four years earlier. My use had just very slowly and steadily, three, four, five pills a day, even up to like eight, nine Vicodin a day. If I can get some Narcos or some Vicodin ES and HPs, then I knew that would be better for me. I started to rationalize in my head, well, I knew that taking all that acetaminophen was going to really hurt me, but I wanted to try to minimize that. So I started to rationalize all these thoughts. And then 9-11 hit, and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe it was just the most surreal day of my life. At that point, we're all going through this together. No one's going to care about what I'm going to do to help myself because there's so much else going on in the world. I just rationalized it. I'm going to continue to do this. And then before I realized it, I literally was up to 15 pills a day. And that's when I realized, I wish I could do something about this. But by then, the guilt of using and the concerns of the withdrawal started to come together. And it made me realize I was free-falling. And I had to be real careful about how I managed my prescription writing and my drug usage. On your timeline, four or five years later, 2006, you entered rehab for the first time. What series of events prompted that? I had started to combine opiates. I started taking octes, which really propelled me into the stratosphere of addiction. The fact that there's no kicker, like I call it, with acetaminophen or anything was a pure neurogenic depressant, but for me, it did the opposite. So the withdrawals were so much worse on oxy. I decided to start to mix drugs and I took alprazolam, which I know is a common drug that often people take in combination. Started taking that really mostly to prevent the withdrawals, which it did seem to work at the time. I started to get extremely exhausted, extremely sleepy, and often took so much Xanax to prevent the withdrawals. I would start to fall asleep at dinner. I would start to mumble. I would. My wife would see these things I was doing that I just wasn't myself. I fell asleep at work a few times. One time I was supposed to meet a friend to go to a Ranger game. I fell asleep on my way home from work going to the train station i fell asleep in a park i had i think two thousand dollars in my pocket that was stolen instead of meeting my friend at the ranger game i ended up going home somehow made it home i don't even remember my wife was like where the hell were you i was like i don't know i was like i missed the game she knew i was falling asleep all the time now and they were really concerned combining that with a few fender benders i had that i was able to talk my way out of and my sister having found pills in my car from one of the fender benders they knew that i had a problem. So the next day after that event, by missing the game, I come home from work and there was an intervention at my house. 
my mom, my dad, his wife, and my father-in-law and my wife were all there. And they had an intervention and, and they basically chewed me out and said, your life's a mess. You need to go into rehab. And they already had plane tickets for me to West Palm Beach. She researched everything that was covered under my insurance. And that was the day that that all happened. You bring up an interesting point. You said that you began to see that things weren't going well, but you didn't know how to get help. Maybe you yeah. were afraid. Maybe you were ashamed. And had it not been for the courage and the love and the concern of your family. Yeah. Did that take away the shame? Psychologically, did you finally say to yourself something like, thank God someone else sees this. I don't have to do it myself. Our concern is that there are a lot of other doctors, a lot of other people who follow these same patterns and don't have the good fortune of an intervention. I didn't realize the impact that my use was having on the people around me and that how much love and support I had. And they saw what it was doing to me. I was able to lie and cheat and steal through all of my addiction because I'm a doctor. I can, I can make up anything. I mean, I shared the story about the spinal tap when I ended up being put in a catatonic state from all the drugs. I can convince anyone that I had a UTI, I might have meningitis, whatever it might be. But I didn't realize the impact that my drug use was having on my family and my children. Ultimately, it was having such a deleterious effect. They did this out of love. I've seen this a lot with opiates. People, I believe, and this is just my feeling for both of you, people who are addicted to opiates are much more amenable to treatment. I feel like we have a much, much deeper effect on realizing the impact of that our use has on our families. And the impact that I realized when I had that intervention did I really do this to them? Did I cause this? When they would share stories of things that I did, I couldn't believe it. It blew me away. And it really put me into an amazing amount of shame and regret and awful guilt, like you said. Then I went to rehab and realized I got to do something about this. But they didn't know about my prescription writing and the selling of the drugs. Like that was a separate issue. I had no problem with going into the rehab. I had kept all these other things aside. And that was a secret to my family at the time. I was went into rehab and, and I did what I needed to do. But I agree. I think it was a real eye-awakening experience when you have an intervention like that and you realize the impact, the negative impact you have on your family. How seriously did you take it at that point that you were thrown out of two rehab programs because you were bringing drugs in while you were going through the rehab? You see the impact, but at the same time, I don't think I was in recovery mode. I was still in relapse mode. The One of the terms I learned was my core behaviors. I still had these attitudes. Listen, I'm a doctor. I know I made some mistakes, but I can hack this. I can get it. And what happened was I was in rehab. I had this people-pleasing behavior that I learned. We called it sentimentality in treatment in prison when I took the RDAP program. It basically says that I was such a people-pleaser that I would do anything to try to make my patients and myself feel better. I would tell patients to call me Richard, not Dr. Morgan. I brought myself down to their level. They said that one of the problems was that I didn't set my boundaries very well with my patients because the problem was I was dealing with my patients. And I think that was part of the problem. I needed to set better boundaries and learn how to be more assertive. And I hadn't been there yet. When I got to rehab, these people were preying on my sentimentality that I just mentioned. This young kid came up to me in rehab. It's like, oh, you're a doctor? I'm like, yeah, I'm a doctor. So what's it about? He's like, so you can call in prescriptions. Hell yeah, I can call in prescriptions. And they'd be like, yeah, so let's call in some scripts. I'm like, Okay, no problem. I called a three-letter pharmacy from rehab, and I literally would be like, I'm Dr. So-and-so from New York. And my friend crawled over the wall and got the prescription filled. I'm like, you see? 
that's what it's about. I felt all tough and like I'm macho because I'm a doctor and I'm in rehab, but I can still make it happen. And that's I like the feeling and attitude that I had, that I hadn't kicked the habit yet. Somehow you made it through these rehab, got back to New York, and then you got involved with the physician health program like we have in Florida. We have something called Physician Recovery Network. You signed a contract with them, but how seriously did you take that? I took it seriously. I was in called CPH in New York, the Committee for Physicians Health. I signed a five-year contract. I don't even remember how I signed it. If my wife signed it, she might have called on me. I don't know. Someone has to report you, and I didn't call. All I know is when I finally came home, I signed the five-year contract, which involved drug testing, monitoring, going to AA meetings, NA meetings, and going to CPA. I went to North Shore University Hospital in Manhasset, where I was doing weekly IOPs. They were really one-on-ones with the head of the department. And I had meetings with them from the day I got home. It was going fine. But again, I was still making bad choices that I described in the article. While I was away, some of the drug dealers that I had been dealing with would swing by my wife's house. She felt threatened. And then when I got home, I actually even felt threatened. They came to my office and said, what the hell? Where have you been? We need these pills. We need those pills. Did they threaten my life directly? No. But there were some scary individuals who you can tell, and I can relate because I saw the relapse mode that they were in, and it scared me. Now, even though I never used again, there was this watershed moment where I could have simply said, I'm not going to do it anymore, apply my assertiveness that I thought I learned in rehab, and make the right decision to go to the proper people to make this go away. What happened was I realized all the negative things that I had done and I didn't want this to come back to bite myself. I made a very bad choice. I said, if I just continue to write these prescriptions for these two people, they'll stay out of my way. I continue to live my life. I'm putting my recovery first and I still did that, which was obviously the wrong one, but that's really what did it to me. And that was really one of these watershed moments I talk about in the article. As your story continues, you were writing these illicit prescriptions, at least one patient death involved there, and then the DEA came in to make an arrest. Yes. The patient died on Valentine's Day 07. It was the roommate of one of the patients that was buying pills from me. He died on, I think, eight or nine different drugs. They found the pill bottle, apparently with my name on it, and his roommate was cornered, and they, he gave my name to the authorities, and they started to investigate me. The first week in May, a warrant went out for my arrest. I was in an office in Midtown Manhattan. There were two federal officers that were in the office. They gave me their card and told me, Dr. Morgan, we're just here to let you know that found out that some of your prescriptions were stolen, and we wanted to know if you noticed anything funny or different. What they were doing was the indictment had been handed down earlier that day, and they were just keeping tabs on me to make sure I didn't find out about it or do anything crazy or foolish. Sunday was Mother's Day. Monday morning was the day of my arrest. They pulled up outside my house and handcuffed me in front of my wife and two-year-old daughter. So that was one episode, but then a few years later, there was another arrest. There's something for Sudafed. They're all connected. They're part of the same story. So first arrest was my original indictment, the conspiracy to distribute oxycodone. I made my parents put up their homes for my bail, and the judge allowed me to continue to practice without prescribing. I left the practices I was working with, and I ended up working independently. I found a friend who connected me with a no-fault attorney, and I opened up a small office in Queens. I was seeing patients there. I had a lawyer at the time. They were going through the case. I went. I was now basically out on bond, on supervised release. And at the time, I thought, you know, I'd probably get, let's say, three to five years or so. So I was very scared, and I was doing what I could to support my family. I had a pill problem. 
and I knew I couldn't take pills because I was getting drug tested by CPH, but I had a comfort with taking pills. Let me just take some Sudafed. And I would go to pharmacies and just buy, purchase Sudafed over the counter. The Methamphetamine Control Act of 2004 or 2005, I believe, limited the amount of, of Sudafed you could purchase. I think it was 12 grams, no more than nine grams in a one month period. So what I was doing was going to pharmacies, buying Sudafed and just taking that, like in lieu of coffee, gave me a little bit of a high, but it wasn't much of one, but it made me feel good. I used that as a comfort thing to substitute the pills that I had taken before, the opiates. I knew that it wouldn't show up on a drug test. So I was taking an inordinate amount of Sudafed though, and I didn't even realize how much I was taking, more than a box a week. It was ridiculous. I was purchasing from certain pharmacies that made you sign and show your ID. And I was just like, it's Sudafed, what's the big deal? So I would show my ID at some pharmacies. Well, I didn't realize that because I was under the guise and supervision of the state that I was glad. What I found out was they went to report me to the state health board and the medical board. Once they got wind of that, I was purchased more than nine grams of Sudafed in a month. That's when they said I violated the terms of my release. It led to my downfall. It never occurred to me that I was doing something illegal. Never. I don't know if it was the addictive nature of my ways or it just never occurred to me that purchasing Sudafed was going to be something that would lead to such a horrible negative consequence. On March 22nd, I was in the shower. I'll never forget. My wife tells me, you're going to have to come out of the shower because there's two federal marshals here to arrest you. I said, arrest me for what? I haven't done anything. And they mentioned the Sudafed thing to me. I'm like, that? I'm getting remanded for that? That I violated by buying an excessive amount of Sudafed, which led to my violation. The DEA agent who agreed to the terms of my release looked at me like I literally killed her firstborn. You go ahead and take Sudafed? I mean, you you literally destroyed the, your, your life and your career now. Listen, what I did was to myself. I don't know what I did to you. We are not doing anything with you. Because at the time, I was going to help them in terms of how I got my pills. I agreed to cooperate in terms of how I was going to help them. It was like I cheated on everyone. Like It was like I cheated on my wife and she caught me. And that's how she made me feel. They threw out the terms of anything that I was going to do to help them. And they remanded me to custody right away. It was the last day I was free at that point until my release from federal prison, which was almost nine years. You mentioned earlier the difference between being in recovery and not. What fed your propensity to slip back? Yeah. And what have you learned about yourself? I'm going to use the word flaw, and I don't say you're a flawed person. What was not working for you? Obviously, a bright guy. You're a physician. Yeah, it's a great question. It's something that I've spent the nine years in federal prison thinking about. What was the path? What was the evolution of what I did? And it goes to the things that I mentioned earlier. I considered myself at many times almost like what you would call a dry drunk. I didn't have it. I hadn't hit my rock bottom. I never had a negative consequence. To me, going to rehab wasn't a negative consequence. I went into detox for 10 days and was being fed pills through detox. I was living in a place in, in Florida where I was basically getting acupuncture and getting Vicodin drinks that they were giving me for my detox. Then I went into recovery. I don't think I ever hit a real bottom. Even through my treatment, when I finally stopped calling in scripts, I did everything they wanted me to do. They basically asked me to follow a guideline, and I finally said, you know what? I'm done with the calling in scripts. I'm just going to do what they tell me to do. The very last day, the director of the rehab said, I see you completed rehab. I still see something in you. You got to be careful, because if you don't quit your wave, you're either going to end up 
relapsing or end up in prison within a year. And I never forgot them, especially eight months later to the day that I was arrested. Were you not scared of these ramifications? Yeah, I saw the ramifications of the treatment that I stopped using opiate. I think the substitution of my addiction was something that I was able to justify by saying, I love those pills. I'm never going to take them again, but I got to find something to substitute because there was no way that I was going to do that to my family. But the way I rationalized in my addicted head was the Sudafed that I substituted for was nothing compared to what I was doing to my body before. Addicts are masters. I was a master of my own brain, convinced myself. Substitution of my addiction was nothing. I was not relapsing. I convinced myself that the Sudafed was not a relapse. This DEA agent told me that I betrayed her and the system and that I was going down for it and I was facing 20 years in federal prison. That's when I realized my life might be over. There are two questions. One is, what's keeping you from using anything now? And number two, what are you doing about it? How are you helping other physicians, students, anybody actually not fall into the same pattern? While I was in prison, I put myself together. I realized that I wanted to do something positive and constructive. I stayed very busy actively. I didn't want to lose that doctor mentality. I wanted to do something positive. I started to work in the recreation department where I developed classes for inmates in anatomy, men's health, nutrition. I started to teach. It gave me a sense and a purpose. It gave me a goal. I got involved in a class called the Inside Out Prison Exchange Program. I was in the the fledgling class, the initial class, and it took off and I spent six years in that. The Inside Out Prison Exchange Program got me involved with outside students at WVU, West Virginia University. 15 inmates and 15 students came together on the federal prison compound and it was supervised by sociology people and professors from the school and by drug counselors here at the college. But it wasn't a drug class that looked at the epidemiology and theory of what makes prisoners do what they do. Stigmatization of inmates and how they are viewed both from outside and inside, ways to help themselves get back on their feet. And we came together, we wrote papers together and discussed the theories of stigmatization of inmates. And I did this for five years. And then I became a facilitator, an inmate facilitator in the class. I actually was one of the first inmates, along with two others, to actually get a chance to leave federal prison and speak at WVU and share my story while an inmate in front of 300 sociology students that shared my story. So I knew I was able to make a difference even while an inmate. After that, I entered the RDAP, which is the Residential Drug and Alcohol Program in prison. I spent nine months doing that. I got to study all these criminal thinking errors. I got very involved with the therapist there. I still communicate with my counselor in prison. What am I doing now? I continue to do substance abuse meetings weekly with other doctors that were struggling with chemical dependency. I do AA meetings. I do drug screenings. I've done about a dozen different talks through addiction conferences throughout Long Island and with other medical schools. I shared my story on campus, which allowed me to get the job that I have now. The doctors that heard my story, the dean called me in his office and says, one doctor stood up after my story was read and goes, if you don't hire this guy, you're crazy. I never forgot that. He used those exact words. One of them actually is going into addiction medicine because of my story. And when I realized the impact that I was having on others, I said, this is what I got to do. I want them to make them realize how much power that pen has when they write those prescriptions, because I never want them to go through what I went through, because I want to make that powerful impact. And when people hear that I was arrested in front of my family and spent 24 hours on a cell and spent five months in county jail before I went to federal prison, those types of things, I want them to hear.
make the change and be an agent of change for them. What would you say is the take-home message that you're trying to pass on to the medical students? Never forget who you are, but never, ever be afraid to ask for help. And I learned that the day that my family had that intervention, because I thought I was alone the whole time, like Abby said. It was a real eye-opening experience, and that you don't have to do it alone. I'll never forget this. I was walking, and I just started crying to myself. What the hell's going on with me? I am so scared to ask for help. And at the same time, I knew that if I didn't go fill this prescription, that I was about to have the single worst 24 to 48 hours of my life. Symptoms of going through withdrawal, dope sickness that you go through, there's nothing worse than it. I, I can't fathom. It was worse than prison. That's how bad it was. And I was walking down the city and I would hear these ads on the radio for these 24-hour anesthesias where you get your opiate receptors, your mu opiate receptors removed and you can well, wake up a free man. And I'm, oh my God, I got to do that. And I couldn't afford it at the time. And I was afraid to even ask where I can go. I would try to find out a little bit about it, but I didn't know who to ask without implicating myself. So it became this domino effect of like guilt and shame, wanting to do something, but not knowing how to get out of it. I was literally in the rabbit hole and that's what scared me the most. I just kept spinning and spinning. I didn't know how to get out of it. The best way I describe it now is that prison saved my life because if I didn't go to prison, I would be dead right now. I was taking 30 pills a day. No one can survive that. So I built up to that tolerance, but you can imagine what the withdrawals would be like if I didn't continue taking them. I was in a horrible, horrible place. The best tool I learned, I learned two tools that helped me. I've always played the tape forward and realized where I was. And I am in such a great place with my children. I reestablished relationships with them. I'm doing so much for my community. These, I work with a foundation now to help formerly incarcerated inmates get out of prison and get jobs, previously incarcerated friends. And doing that has really helped me. Just spreading that message of strength and hope, it helps me every single time. We talk about something like 10% of physicians suffer from a substance use. So clearly, we need to do something to identify these individuals. Clearly, we need a system that's going to help them. Now, in your case, you really worked the system. Oh, yeah. That way didn't work for you. You know, you were smart. You're a doctor. You were continued to write illicit prescriptions. You were taking cash. You were doing drugs while in rehab. You signed a contract, but you still did stuff. What is it? that we need to do to modify the system so that other clever, intelligent physicians like yourself don't come in and figure out, hey, I'm better than that. I'll figure out a way to work this system. I'll tell you exactly what we need to do. I need to be able to share my story and tell other students, other residents, and other doctors how to recognize the signs and symptoms of addiction that I went through myself. I literally go through the laundry list of things. I didn't realize I was doing certain things, sometimes subtly, but honestly, everyone who's going a horrible addiction like myself, even if it's just starting out, there were changes. You cannot be addicted to something without having physical, emotional, behavioral changes. By recognizing those changes and really making other physicians aware of them is really, really important. And I tell the residents and the medical students that they need to understand these addictions. And I recognize lateness, poor note writing, changes in behavior an attitude, short temper, poor hygiene, poorly dressed, little subtle things like that. If they're doing that all the time, it's one thing. But if they change and become these things, this is a possibility. Not just recognizing it, but a lot of the students I know are going to be like, who am I? I'm a third-year student. What the hell can I do? If you got an attending who's showing up red-faced and a big nose and he's coming with alcohol in his breath, what can you do? You need to know you took a Hippocratic oath. 
and that the life of the patient is the most important thing. And if that physician does something and you knew about it, and then that leads to the morbidity or mortality of a patient, that you can have changed that. I want to really stress that to everyone in healthcare. Everyone who's a part of that team should be aware of the, the signs and symptoms of someone who could be potentially addicted. And that's what I loved about the article because they got different viewpoints of people who saw these changes in me that I didn't see in myself. We need to change the education system from the beginning. If I heard my story as a first-year student, I never would have taken a pill. That's a fact. But if I had heard my story, and if other students now are struggling, like you say 10%, I could maybe change the lives of four or five. What is it we really need to do, though, for those docs who don't think they have a problem, or those docs who know they have a problem, but they don't really want to treat it? And it depends on the state of where they are in their addiction. If they're affecting negatively patient care, do I Obviously, people need to be made aware. Every state has it. So there are anonymous calls that can be made if you think that a physician is acting inappropriately or is addicted or an alcoholic, then you can make that phone call and they will look into it. It'll be done anonymously. There's ways that you can bring other people in. Doctors need to be made aware that there's consequences for their actions. The funny thing is I've met 30, 40 doctors in federal prison. I'm the only one I know of that admitted to doing something wrong. All these other doctors are like, I did nothing wrong. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm not just talking Medicare fraud. A lot of these doctors wrote many more prescriptions than me. The fact is most of them won't even admit they have a problem. Their egos need to be put in check. And that's the problem. It really starts with the med students. And when you start training early on, you develop more of an awareness. You're saying, what can we do for the doctors at this moment? That's the tricky thing. That anonymously, phone calls can be made. If you think that their patients are put at risk, there needs to be specific educational things set up. The whole healthcare system needs to be made aware. There needs to be an opiate training program. Everyone involved in the care on those floors, take a training program. It could be online, but I think it's better in person. And then and have it end with someone sh- sharing their story. Do you think there should be mandatory screenings for physicians? That's an interesting question. I don't see anything wrong with it, to be honest with you. Probably a lot of pushback on it, maybe on a case-by-case basis should incorporate. It really needs to be looked into. One comes up positive, then you take it from there. What about the chance of you relapsing? I think there's always a possibility, but here's the thing. I'm in a different place in my life right now. It's easy to say, I went through the worst time of my life. I lost everything. I had nothing. I hit rock bottom, but I never forget where I was. By me always and constantly playing the tape forward, and by me continuing to share my story, continuing to go to meetings every week, these things always keep me in check. I have so many blessings today that I wouldn't have if I was not sober. I need to always remember that. Mindfulness techniques really change the way I view things. I don't get angry anymore. I don't get upset. I always look at myself. I always am able to step back now. I go through some of the scenarios about putting myself in my position of where I am now. I use a lot of those mindful watcher techniques, and it really has helped doing my meetings, talking to others. There's not a chance that I would ever go back to where I was because I know what it was. Your license was revoked. It was not revoked. I voluntarily surrendered it. That's how I'm allowed to get it back. So that was part of your deal, the state. The day I got indicted, I pled guilty. That puts me in good standing with the Albany Medical Board. Can you get your license back? Should you get your license back? What I find interesting in some of these articles 
such as the Medscape articles, reading the comments. Okay, and there's some, I'm sure you've looked at the comments. There's a lot of mixed stuff. There's some pretty vile comments. I'll read one. People like this guy don't deserve any sympathy. It's a different thing if you were just an addict. But this guy sold prescriptions, killed people, kept doing it for a long time. Being able to care for patients is a noble profession. He does not deserve to get his license back. Someone else wrote, it's particularly annoying to watch a guy like this try and work around the legal system. I think his jail sentence was too light. Your reaction to that? I don't really consider it because they're not in my shoes. Everyone's allowed to have an opinion, and that's why I don't even bother with other people's comments because they weren't in my shoes. They haven't lived my life, and I know that I'm making a difference in people's lives now. I can't sit and live in regret and live in the past. I can only move forward, and I can sit here and I can spend nine years worrying about all the things that I could have done differently, but nothing's going to change the past. And if I can make a difference and a positive change, All I've been around is so much support and love from the people, not just in family, but at the medical school have been really took a chance on. And there's nothing that I'm going to do to make them. I'm so blessed to be where I am today that I practice these mindfulness techniques and it really does work. As far as my license, I have a very good chance of getting it back. I wouldn't have signed up for CPH if I didn't believe so. I'm doing an IME next week. I've been all negative testing. Listen, I mean, I'm a full-time professor at a medical school. I'm working with students every day, every week, every month. You know, I worked in a restaurant for three years, which really humbled me. I made some amazing friends and learned so much. But now I'm back in my element, and I think teaching is my element. I have a very good chance of getting my license back. Otherwise, I wouldn't have signed up with CPH. Um, I've been with them a year now. I have four more years to go. I would apply for what's called a restoration of my license, and it doesn't go through the medical board or OPMC, the Office of Professional Medical Conduct. It actually goes through what I learned is through the Department of Education. It's a slightly different process. And I spoke with the director and the president of CPH, uh, Terry, and he told me, there's no reason why you can't get it back if you do everything you're supposed to do. I would never want to do anything to let them down. But I will tell you both this much. If I don't get my license back, it's okay too. It doesn't change the fact that I love teaching. I'm really in my element. In fact, if I get my license back, I would only stay with the the school anyway and work in the clinic or become like a lead investigator on addiction medicine research, which I'm working on now. I don't plan on opening up a practice at NYU. They just asked me to do their grand rounds. And I'm going to share my story at NYU next month. Abby, any other questions? This is a lot of stuff and I'm very... Very glad to hear that you have evolved. From a psychiatric point of view, I have a thousand questions, but not for this evening. I wish you well, and I thank you for opening up, and I hope people learn from you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure meeting both of you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure, both of you.